0: So welcome to The Investment Cuddle. I'm joined by Philip and Keith. Today, we're going to talk financial documentaries. So a bit like we did with financial movies in episode four. We're just going to go through a top five because we can't do top tens. It takes too long. We can't agree. So Philip, Keith, we've got a top five today. The first one that we've got on our list is money as debt by Paul Grignon.
1: Do you want to give us a flavour of what that one's about? So this was a film back from 2006, if I remember rightly, predominantly an animated film documentary, and it tries to give a high-level description of how a modern banking system works, how a fractional reserve banking system works, and a bit about its history, and a bit about its fragility, because it's a fractional reserve banking system, and it was probably one of the first... Sort of financial documentaries I probably watched that gave me some idea of actually understanding how on earth our banking system sort of works because it was nothing like how I thought it worked,
0: okay, and so that so from a basis of a documentary, it's very much about where banking started, how we ended up with banks in the first place
1: yeah, so it it talks about how our cousin our current day banking system has evolved to where it is today, and some of the ways it got through, how paper money came about, where it's been used where the phrase is promissory notes and so forth came and why the Bank of England uh, pound notes still say the phrase uh, the Bank of England promises to pay the bearer the sum of £5 pounds, and what that actually means, even though that's completely and factually incorrect anymore because the, bank, the Governor of the Bank of England will not give you £5 pounds of sterling silver in exchange for a £5 pound note anymore.
0: No, crikey, if he was going to do that, I think we'd all be queuing around the corner, wouldn't we?
1: Yes, because the five pound of sterling silver is worth a hell of a lot more than five pounds of a pound coin, but it gives you an idea of what a pound
2: used to be really value. Gary's just re- described a run on the bank.
1: Yes, and that's one of the things it talks about. There is how because of a fractional reserve banking system, they have got these little cartoons that explains how a run on a bank can go very quickly. And the irony was in back in two thousand six, a couple of years later, guess what? We had in the UK runs on two banks: the Royal Bank of Scotland and. Um, uh, Northern Rock Bank so it's ironies they were just probably what two to three years too early yeah what's the the Bank of England's on Threadneedle Street isn't it yes well one of them because it's on about four streets because the streets are around it but Threadneedle Street is the front door
0: I'm just making sure everybody knows where where they're going to be queuing
1: and they have the exchange room which is now the museum where you can look at coins but you can't exchange no and where we have actually been haven't have we you- We've actually been to the Bank of England and we've held a gold bar in amongst this massive, great big armoured cage. So you can't steal the gold bar.
0: Yeah, so well, well worth a visit. So that was number five. And it's probably worth saying that we'll put
1: the links to, because most of these are on YouTube. Quite a few of them can be found on YouTube. Some of them can be found on other video sites, which we will, where we know we'll put links to.
0: So that was number five, money as debt. Number four. Slightly controversial, because I think this one could be further up the list at number four we 've got Enron, which I believe
1: is a documentary that 's available on Netflix. What do we know what do we know you, about Enron Philip so for those of you that are maybe not that old, Enron was a very, very famous fraudulent company that blew up just after the dot com boom so around about two thousand and one. Not only did Enron go bust, but it also brought down their auditors, Arthur Anderson, who basically went bankrupt. And this was one of the biggest financial scandals at the time. It eclipsed even the WorldCom financial scandal, at WorldCom Telecom's company, who also mounted mass fraud. Um, their chief executive, Kenneth Lay, blew his own brains out when the FBI was storming his villa in, oh, sorry, his ramp in Houston in Texas. And their chief financial officer was trying to throw himself out the built out of a, a building as he was being arrested. So quite a lot of their senior staff committed suicide than to face the music. It uh, it was quite a unique documentary. I remember watching at the time because he explained about the sheer amount of fraud that was going on and how how the, it was covered up by the investment banks because they took fees. So therefore, anyone that criticised any analyst that criticised Enron, they fired. Because they everyone paid the bigger fees. But the most important one I found that was useful for me as an investor was in there they talked to some of their employees. And what I found shocking was at the time how many of the employees had almost all of their savings and net worth invested in their company. They had almost no diversification. Their pension was all invested in M1 shares. Their stock options was Enron shares. Any other savings I had were in M1 shares. Their house price was attached to the Houston area where Enron was by far the biggest employer. Uh, and of course, their income was from their company, which was Enron. And it made me think, going, yeah, am I heavily undiversified when I realized that I was maybe not quite as bad as them, but I was not as diversified as I thought. So that's one of the biggest things that came out of me when I uh, saw that movie. It's also quite done in a quite dry, pan way, and it's interesting when you listen to the numbers, the sheer amount of the fraud that went on. And some of the stories of what went on, you think it's a joke. It's got to be a comedy, but as we found out with some other films, sometimes reality is better than comedy. Well, yeah, just when
0: remind me when the Enron uh, collapse occurred. It,
1: 2001? So that's all Definitely. in around the dot-com. So just after the dot-com blew up right. and all the... The bubble blew up with some of the other the investment grade credit markets. That's what then put a lot of pressure on Enron Was they couldn't refinance their debt, couldn't hide the fact that they weren't making money and hadn't made money for ten years. And then the short sellers finally, because the short sellers now didn't work for the banks anymore, the investment banks—they're all private. They just just went for the kill.
0: Yeah. So I mean, that's I guess while everything was running and there was the bubble. was was there? They were fine, but like you said, I think the thing that was just shocking to me, which shouldn't be really, I guess, but it was the fact that people's pensions, salaries, and shareholdings were all in one company. You would bet on one horse, and it turned out the lord The horse had—I was going to
1: say—three legs in the end. they didn't have a leg. they didn't have a head.
2: <laughs> At the time, Enron was the darling of Wall Street, so. No wonder everybody was piling everything onto Enron.
1: Kenneth Lay and the other chief um, and the other board of directors would sue anyone that hinted about any fraudulent practices at Enron. They were the most litigious companies going at the time.
2: The thing that I thought might be interesting about Enron uh, to mention was the natural language processing uh, community used the Enron uh, the Enron emails. As a data source it's you know, it was a huge data source uh, that was made publicly available at some point. They use that to you know trawl through and uh, they they use that data to um, to train their models and and whatnot or you know uh, see what see what data they can extract using their models as training data I think it's widely used the Enron corpus. A database of over six hundred thousand emails generated by one hundred and fifty-eight employees.
1: That's not bad for that few email number of employees.
0: Yeah. No. Well, there you go. That's an interesting, interesting data source. So that's number four, which is Enron. So number three, we cheated a bit with this, didn't we, Philip? Yes. Yeah. So as we're cheating, I'll let you intru- I'll let you introduce
1: this. So this is um, a set of documentaries that were commissioned by Channel 4 Corporation in the United Kingdom um, by, based on the books that uh, Professor Niall Ferguson wrote, who was the um, uh, professor of Hi- financial history at then Harvard University. So there was The Ascent of Money, which is basically the history of finance and banking and the monetary system from ancient um, Civilizations to the modern world, where they talk about, and he also explains how the modern banking system works. Then there was another one, which the Center of Money was published around about two thousand and nine, I think. Another the next series was called Civilization: The West is the West History, which was based in his book, which was Civilization: The Things Eight Killer Apps. What was the things that made the Western civilizations? Uh, become the first industrialized nation and not China. Because in theory, when you look at China, China should have become the first industrialized nation back in sort of like the 12th, 13th century, not like Britain did in the 17th century. So things of that nature. And then finally, another one he did, which was based on the history of China, which was called China Triumph and Turmoil, which explains China's financial history and why they behave the way they do and how the fact that why is China historically so inward-looking? Why is historically China so authoritarian? And why, when it's not usually very authoritarian, civil wars and plagues and famines in China are colossally uh, tragic events that kill tens, if sometimes hundreds of millions of people, and how their behaviour over those years in the China civilizations follows that pattern. And it's quite interesting when you see how little China has changed historically, all I'd say on those, those documentaries is
0: we'll, we'll, you'll, you'll get a bit more opportunity to talk about China in a minute, Philip. But yeah, Niall Ferguson, I think for me, Niall Ferguson's, he's a, he's very engaging. I'm not going to class him as David Attenborough, but he's very engaging in the way he delivers the content. And I think that's a real positive. It makes it very easy to watch. You know, I think if you watch like Neil Oliver, so Neil Oliver does all the sort of, he does does it, a whole host of uh history documentaries
1: because he's an academic it's very unusual to have one who's so engaging on television also he's extremely controversial yeah a lot of people do not like his uh theories or his presentation of history so that was uh, so that was a bit about the these three series of um an R Ferguson series well worth watching they're quite informative and they give you a good Historic as well as financial
2: perspective. I was just thinking um, about what, what I mentioned about the Enron emails earlier, that one of the things that you might do was a word cloud. And if you did a word cloud on this conversation, edit, it'd be right up there. <laughs> yes, I think that's right. right.
0: But I have to say with, with the Noel Ferguson documentaries, you know, depending on what you're interested in, they're all worth a, a watch. And that's why we didn't really differentiate between them because he's engaging – in a subject that we're interested in if you're interested in it too then then have a look at, at those and i mean in terms of availability he did a few of those for channel four didn't he
1: yeah they got distributed so many programs i think i believe they've been on pbs in america and um, they may or may not they've been on and off netflix from time to time
0: no but i think they're also available on for those for those of us um, heathens who are still using <laughs> DVDs, you
1: can get a lot of his stuff on DVD. It's starting to get it's more expensive like now because I think they're not making any more DVDs. But, yeah, they are still around if you know where to look. So at number two, we've got Trader. This was back from a long, long time ago, 1987, this documentary, Trader, which is about one of the earlier hedge fund managers, and now it's quite famous, poor Tudor Jones II, you get to see a variety of variety of episodes of him and you get to see the decor of a very, very, very 1980s of how he sort of trades throughout the night. Doesn't really uh, He seems to live in quite a different world. Um, so he can be... Because back then, Japan was a big thing to trade in, certainly in the options market. So in a bit of America, you, it's late night. So the other thing is about that one is it, it looks... It, it takes... It, that documentary takes it through... Paul's um, typical day in life as a trader, probably a bit different than how it is now, but it gives you quite a good idea of what it used to be like and how he used to tackle the world and why he's quite different, should we say? Because I wouldn't imagine there was that many traders that maybe quite like him.
2: I think it's probably fair to say that he's he's recognised as one of the best traders, well, of his generation, possibly one of the best traders known yeah, because he's been doing this since the
1: '80s, and he's still going, I believe. So that's that's well over th- that's a well a career of well over thirty
2: years. So it featured him uh, prominently on on the phone to the guys beside the pit, shouting in the sh- shouting in his instructions. It was almost like the phone was glued uh, to his side at one point, if I remember right. Yeah, and when things got a bit rocky. He would put on bruce willis's trainers remember that bit Philip? oh yes yeah, from pucks and hawk <laughs> so <laughs> another 80s film sorry so uh what i what i need to find is uh bob willis's cricket boots and when things get a bit rocky in one of my trades i can put on <laughs> bob willis's cricket boots so and then will uh, be well with the world yeah yeah yeah
1: but, yeah, if you can get hold of it, it's worth watching because it gives you an idea of what things used to be like and to some degree what Trader does, but
2: slightly differently now. Yeah, and I think it's, it, you know, it you could pick out, really, it's, uh, it is heavily quoted, but I think it's probably best known for, he called the 1987 crash. Yes, and on the very they were, they were using the 1920s as an analogue. And uh, they were they were watching the market run up and noticing how well it it was correlated to the nineteen twenties boom and uh, looking for that bust and I think that that drove them to be positioned very very well uh, for the nineteen eighty seven crash.
0: Do you want to just remind us
1: what happened in eighty seven? what well, for those of us who weren't old enough to be there at the time 27 year olds won't remember more it. infamous no i don't actually remember it. i'm having to read it as now because i wasn't old enough but yes effectively what happened there was a flash crash on the western stock markets starting in america believed to be around certain automated trade positions that meant to de-risk things what no one realized was um when everyone does the de-risking of the same thing with the same algorithm, it tends to reinforce itself. So, it had a big in one day. Um, there was a big, big correction. I've forgotten how much it was, but it was around about twenty percent. If it just happens to be, if anyone watches The Wolf of Wall Street, that very beginning of the film, when that that big crash, that's the that's the nineteen eighty seven crash he's talking about in that film. Now it was a very quick one because it recovered quite quickly. And after the nineteen eighty seven crash, they put in circuit breakers into uh, the stock exchanges. So basically, if any trade, any one single share moves up or down by a a certain percentage, I think it's 5 or 10%, in a very short space of time, you have 15-minute cool-off periods. And if the whole market moves by similar sort of percentages, they shut the market down for 15 to 20 minutes, just so that it clears all the automated algorithms and then starts them again, so it stops that reinforcement loop. Right, okay. And how much did it drop in one day? And it
0: wasn't
2: like... To so the close of the low.
1: No, close. So the day in it what market?
2: Dropped October
1: 19, 1987, most Western markets dropped. So the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 508 points, which at the time represented 22.6% in one day. I think it's one of the biggest
2: drops in a single day. Yeah, and it was the Dow that, uh, that they were looking at. Because of the, the dominantly long nah. history of the Dow, yeah, yeah, because
1: that's the only one. Because the S and P had only been around since about the fifties. But yeah, all yeah. the same with the FTSE went down. All major currency, all major stock markets in the world went down. But it happened in America and it was heavy. Yeah, it was a big deal at the
0: time, wasn't it? And I think it feels a long time ago now. Yeah. But it was the dot com, which was early two thousands, late late ninety nine, two thousand time, time period. We've got 87 and obviously we've, we've not mentioned 08. 87 was a big deal at the time. And people still talk about that now as a serious crash. So, you know, I think just on the documentary, it's about looking back and taking the lessons of history. Cause you said just a a minute ago, Keith, about, you know, they were tracking the 29 crash, which gave them indicators for the 87 crash. And I think it's quite often that we don't learn from history and I'm just kind of, I'm probably taking a slight sidetrack here, but you know, a bit like with Enron, you look at some of the companies that are around at the moment that are in perhaps lots of people's opinion overvalued for what they do or what they deliver or what they make in terms of profit. It feels like you could argue at the moment that could be in that kind of a bubble. So it's well worth having a look back at where
1: we've come from. And it's also worth <laughs> quoting a famous uh, quote from a legendary investor from the early early 1900s, late 1800s, Jesse Livermore. There's nothing new in finance or on Wall Street. All it is is repackaged with a new name.
0: So that's Trader. And at number one, again, anyway, subject to lots of discussion and I'm not sure we're all completely content with number one but at number one we've got the china hustle philip do you want to give us a brief overview of the china hustle
1: yeah so the china hustle is a relatively new film done in 2018 Uh, i watched it on netflix but this is a very interesting one Uh, and the reason possibly it's number one is all the others are history this is live as we speak it's basically all about the frauds being committed by all these Chinese companies that are listing themselves on the American market and basically forging what they're actually doing and forging their financial statements. So there's a couple of famous short sellers there of which Muddy Waters are involved in one of them where they're talking about how they've gone and checked by paying people to go and look at the factories and realize that if they're producing what they say they're producing in their financial statements, we should give them to the American Stock Exchange. there should be like, I don't know, have, what did you phrase it? Something like there should be a, a, fa- a truck coming out of the factory every five minutes. What we found, there was a truck coming out of the factory every five days. And then they talk about how the second and third tier investment banks, usually in California and the East Coast, and how they basically repackage these Reverse takeovers. So most of these company Chinese companies don't actually list on the American Stock Exchange because if you list, you have to give a prospectus, which means you actually have to give some information. So what they do is they get their second and third tier investment banks to go find a company that's already listed, but it's effectively now a shell company and the prices are going bust and basically take them over. So similar to what a SPAC does at the moment. And then because they want through on the stock market, there's not a great deal of oversight, as people are finding out. You post these numbers, but you can't get auditors to audit the Chinese companies because that's illegal in China. And they just pocket hundreds of millions of dollars in just pure fraud. And the investment banks take their fee. It's really an eye opener to watch about
2: the colossal fraud that is currently ongoing. Yeah, I said edit yet. <laughs> Gobsmacked. <laughs> Gobsmack, Philip. Gobsmacked. You've 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 booted out the Money Masters because of its controversial content. And then you've just dropped that ball at number one.
1: Yeah, but this is directly on Netflix. And it's done by a reputable documentary company. And it's got the guy the chief executive Muddy Waters on there, so it must be true. Is it Look it Looking Coffee? Did they mention no, that, Looking Coffee? That was coffee? the recent one. That was the recent one that um Buddy Waters made a fortune by showing that they cooked the books because they don't. Well, they haven't been selling anywhere near what they said they've been selling.
2: And you so know the, the m- you know the muck had got long looking coffee before the the fraud was exposed.
1: Uh, no, I didn't know that, but I can't. I'm surprised. Can't say. Right. I don't. I don't know whether that was also,
2: before or after he got his China anal- analyst in, To be honest,
1: they've been going up for years before anyone had the. The balls to go and actually um, have the evidence to f- uh, show them up because they started litigation against muddy waters. They're also in the China Hustle, there's a great scene in there where one of the um, sub-tier investment banks, I think it's called Roth Capital, they bring out they got a um, an old uh, American general to be their chief executive, and the interviewers give him a really hard time. The fact that he's just a front man, and he doesn't, he's, he's and I don't think he. He knows about the fraud going on, but he's happy to take the money. And it's quite, it's quite an interesting, so you can see people are getting, there's lots of people that are being defrauded, but some people are being paid very well to
2: be defrauded. But they're using uh, satellite images, things like that, of traffic.
1: Some of them, yeah, where you can do, and they've sent, they had other people on the grounds, and some of their guys who are actually going there got arrested, and it took them a year to get them bailed because this is all highly illegal in China, illegal, but still goes on. And it's very interesting.
2: Illegal goes on and is, and is tolerated so long as you're toe in the line. I guess, uh, that's the same the world over.
1: Possibly the numbers just aren't as bad or as big as they are here. Mm. So it's a lot in there. So the, the most important thing about this documentary is be very careful what you invested in do a bit of due diligence. Because a lot of people lost a lot of money on these fraudulent companies.
0: They did interview a few people that put the pension savings in these companies, hadn't they?
1: Yeah, $100,000, $200,000, all their entire life savings. Yeah, so
0: it was, it was significant issues. And I think because the, the main guy out of Muddy Waters is Carson Block. Yeah. Yep. But I think there's one other guy that's, that was interviewed mostly through that documentary.
1: Yes. wasn't Carson he was I don't an think next employee of the investment bank that used to sell them because he used, and he was one of the people who used to pump and dump these companies penny shares as they used to be so boiler yeah. it's part of the boiler room scam before he he had a clash of conscience about what he was doing it's interesting to know that the china <laughs> hustle mark cuban the hedge fund manager was one of the people that produced and financed it and it was produced oh. who's distributed my mangalone uh, pictures the shark is a shark, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, Mark Cuban, the shark. Uh, yeah, so he was one of the ones that financed this and several other sort of films.
0: Yeah, I think, and, but I think the point that you made earlier on, Philip, was the fact that this period that they're talking about, essentially it, it, it almost comes across as this is chapter one in a story. You, you, don't, you don't know where this is going. Because potentially there's yeah. still a lot more of this to be shown by the short short sellers.
1: Um, that's right. Because all the other documentaries were in the past. This is still live. Yeah, I, that's why I struggled to put this at number
0: one. Because you know I would probably have preferred Enron at number one because Enron's done. You can see it. You know, 20 years ago this thing went pop, and you can see the the fallout from it actually with the muddy water stuff as you said it's still ongoing you don't really know where it's going to land but it doesn't look
1: great i don't think no because there's lots of chinese companies now like lucking coffee they're now being pulled up as being just a front shell
2: company kyle bus is another hedge fund manager that is very vocal about well vocal about china in general but he's vocal about the chinese firms that are listed in the U.S., but not uh, not conforming to the U.S. accounting standards. Exactly. Because there's a lot of trying
1: in the previous American administration to get them banned, to get them thrown off the American stock exchanges, have them delisted, because they're actually a danger to the American public. Because even where they have got relevant bits of paperwork that look legit, they can't
2: be audited. What do they do about all the ETFs that cover foreign investment?
1: that's part of the problem yeah so most of these ets
2: because it's difficult
1: or very expensive to get china or hong kong shares they wanted these that's why there was a value in getting these companies listed on the american market that was your exposure to china the problem is you can't believe the numbers as they said in the film lots of them are very easy to but they're not even right and then there's a few that don't even bother publishing them Although they, by not publishing financial statements means it's far easier to get the company delisted because they're just not conforming. Because an auditor's is meant to be able to check that they are not producing complete fiction. Admittedly, Enron, WorldCom, and uh, was it Carillion in the UK, are brilliant cases where even, the, uh, even when they are doing uh, audits, they don't catch the fraud that's going on and has been going on for 10 years.
0: Yeah, so a complicated subject, but really one that is current, I think, I found it shocking, if I'm honest, and that's just probably more my naivety than anything else because, you know, we, we've seen over history people, people get, you know, lose money, a lot of money, getting in stuff that they think is okay, and this is just another example really, but yeah, I found, I
2: found it shocking, I really did. Do you remember me talking about the opportunities in forensic accounting? And mm-hmm. uh, we did we watch the video? Um, yeah, I think I was probably at least if we didn't watch it, I was promising to share it anyway. But I think we watched a video, and one of the things that was explained in that that a lot of the a lot of the resource that these accounting firms are putting into into this activity uh, to look into the the companies, you know, they're all. They're all young whippersnappers, you know. that are overworked, you know. Consequently, they yeah, can uh, the auditing and maybe get up their, to bring up in the wall pulled board over board. their eyes. Let's say, yeah, yeah. Because
1: there's a whole things about the whole audit industry. Because several several UK companies have got under because of fraud that's not been completely missed by the auditors, as well as the massive fraud that went on in um in the wild in Germany. And that was a DAX 30 company, one of the thir- one of the biggest
2: companies in Germany. Harry Markopolos, I think, uh, he was uh, blowing the whistle on uh, on uh, on Bernie Madoff, because he it, basically what he was saying was that you know there, were, there was more there was more of this that he could than he could possibly go after, and the methods of, of detecting it are you know. You can teach people you know it's it's kind of reproducible you just need you just need the grunt you just need the manpower
0: given the fact that we've gone through our top five documentaries and there is an awful lot of documentaries around on this subject are there any that we have missed that should have made the list or any that we should have we should have mentioned
1: yeah there's one Million Dollar Trader from 2009. This was, I believe, on the BBC Commission. It's more of a... um, It's not really a documentary. It's more of a... um, It's more of a reality TV show than a documentary. That's why it's not really in the top five. But it's quite good. It's basically... There was a fund manager called Lex Van Dam from Holland who basically puts up a million pounds of his own money because he believes he could teach anyone to become a trader. So he gets this group of fairly random cross-section of the uk population and tries to teach them how to be traders and it's quite interesting worth watching some of the techniques that do and don't really work and there's some very comic scenes but it happens to be also it just happened to be at the same time that Lehman brothers blew up and the financial crisis hit so there's some choice words when people suddenly lost lots of money very very quickly was it inspired by the turtle traders for that? don't know keith do you have any um honorable mentions you'd like to bring up we didn't
2: talk about. Bill Still and the Money Masters. Did we talk about that? No, no, we've not we, we, didn't, we didn't talk about that Okay, Bill Still and the Money Masters. Uh, well, actually Bill Still uh, produced uh, the, the Money Masters and uh, The Secret of Oz How do you, you summarise uh, what is probably something close to six hours of documentary in a quick oh, sound bite? Yeah, so I think, well, with The Money Masters, it, it draws upon financial history um, and touches on a number of things that uh, Niall Ferguson talks about. Bill Still visited the Bank of England Museum, same one that uh, yourself and Philip visited Gary, uh, and held an example of the tally stick, which was, I think, King Henry basically uh, issued tally sticks into existence which was a, cre- a creation of money not born of debt uh, so the king spent spent the money into existence and it was good for money because it was accepted as payment for taxes the tally stick, an invention that Basically it, it split the uh, a piece of wood into two so that uh, it could be matched at a later date and you could tell that it was from the same, that it was from the same piece of wood. Notches were put in to show the denomination that it was split between the stock and the foil, so you could uh, the king spent that into existence and it was tra- a, a tradable asset and could be used to pay taxes. Uh, and for uh, something like uh, 700 years, it was used uh, with great effect to to fund building of an empire. That's just one, uh, one element of those numerous hours of that uh, the Bill Still documentary, so it, uh, Absolute Tour de Force. The Secret of Oz talks about, let's say, the alleged uh, symbolism uh, of Elfron Baum's. Wizard of Oz, and as Dorothy had uh, the power to get home all along and didn't need to follow the yellow brick road uh, in order to get home. So the, well, the yellow brick road is a, is a symbol of the, the debt-based gold-backed system at the time. Uh, and... The, uh, the silver slippers that were in the book were a symbol of, of Dorothy having the ability to, to solve her problem. The problem was very much at the time tight money uh, and if, if they'd used uh, recognised silver, they could have made financial conditions much looser and, and uh, facilitated trade. And instead of crops going to waste in the fields, they could have employed people who were otherwise unemployed. Uh, people would have had the money to pay for them had they been harvested instead of laid to waste. A yeah, terrible and terribly long explanation of Bill Still's documentaries.
0: So, yeah, so there's a few extra there that um, you could look at. But I think our top five, as we said earlier on, Money is debt, number five. Enron, the smartest guys in the room, at number four. Three was the Nile Ferguson. Two to do Jones. It? <laughs> keep Tudu. it together, Gary.
1: I'll
0: keep going. And at number one was the China Hustle. So yeah, our top five. Let us know if you uh, agree or disagree. So it just leaves me to say thank you to Philip and Keith for joining us today and we'll see you next time.
1: This program has been presented for information and educational purposes only. None of the information or content of the programme is to be taken as an offer, opinion or recommendation by the program's hosts or guests to buy or sell
2: securities,
1: nor is it intended to provide legal, tax, accounting, commercial or financial advice. Opinions and comments are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investing involves risk as prices go up or down based on a number of factors. Always consider consulting a financial professional before investing.